Hey theater lovers, it's Bryn. I'm so psyched to talk to y'all today about Skin Song by Katherine Gwynn. It's our first play that centers deaf and or disabled people, and as an ASL novice and disabled human, I am so excited by this play. But before we get into all that, here are this week's announcements. I want to start using some of this time to promote online theater performances that I've been seeing advertised in my little circle of theater pros, both so that these theaters and hardworking professionals can get bigger audiences, but also so that you guys can still enjoy theater while we're all staying safe and away from large gatherings. So here's a list of some cool stuff I've recently been made aware of. All times are in EST. The company I've been working with, Waterhouse Collective, is still in the midst of their digital theater festival. The next piece, called Gut Instinct Diaphragm Monster Fear Peace Play by Lee Harrison Daniel, will be premiering tonight at 7 p.m. It's free, but there is a suggested donation of $10 if you are able to pay. It is on Waterhouse Collective's website. Just Google Waterhouse Collective. My alma mater, Sarah Lawrence College, is continuing on with their season for the semester digitally. Their first look reading series is fantastic, and the play There Is Only Then and Now by my good friend Karen Lowy-Movia and directed by another good friend, Chanel Blanchette, will be premiering on September 30th at 8pm. Trigger warning for sexual assault. The Eventbrite link can be found through the Sarah Lawrence College Theater Program website and Instagram. The link is in their bio. This event is also free. There's a performance company that I follow closely called Epoch Tribe. They create socially impactful and culturally conscious events. Their next event is on September 27th at 6 p.m. and is called Hashtag Bars for Brianna. They will be sharing poems, songs, prose, and words of light and love in honor of Brianna Taylor. You can find the information necessary to attend on their Facebook page and their Instagram, which is at Epoch Tribe. At sign E-P-O-C-H-T-R-I-B-E. This event is also free. A really cool company I recently discovered, called Hamlet Isn't Dead, is doing an online production of Shakespeare's Timon of Athens. The event is on September 28th at 8pm. You can find the Eventbrite through a link in their Instagram bio, which is at Hamlet Isn't Dead, no apostrophe and isn't. As far as I am aware, this event is free as well. Lastly, if you love Animal Crossing, you'll want to see this play. Put on by the Void Theater, Villager was created by the company and put on for Philadelphia Fringe this year. It has already premiered. However, if you missed it, you can still see it. Just go to their Instagram at the Void Theater, theater spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E, and go to their first story highlights. It tells you how to donate so that you can get a link to watch a recording of the performance. That's all for announcements today. And with that, it's time to dive, literally, into the world of Skin Song by Katherine Gwynn. Katherine Gwynn is a Kansas City-based, non-binary woman playwright. They grew up in what they call the heartland of the USA, as the child of two deaf adults. They attended Kansas City University, where their play, Merely Players, was first performed in 2015. This work was awarded the Jane Chambers Student Playwriting Award from the Woman in Theater Program of A-T-H-E. 
Gwyn was a resident artist at the Fish Tank Theater from 2016 to 2017, where they acted as both a producer and dramaturg. They recently finished a commission from Rockhurst University entitled Portrait of a Woman's Tears. A summary of Skin Song from New Play Exchange. A woman is brought to shore. She cannot be heard. Her name is not Undine. In this loose retelling of The Little Mermaid, there is a selkie who can dance but not speak, a deaf woman who signs to the sea, a silent chorus, and a lobster man who hates being a lobster man. Incorporating ASL, shadow voicing, projection, dance, and music, Skin Song is a play about being silent and voiceless and the difference between love and possession. I'm really excited to talk about a play that centers deaf slash disabled queer women. I'm especially excited to talk about ASL as I'm actually in the process of learning it myself. Uh, it helps with some of my audio processing issues that I suffer from as a result of ADHD, as well as uh, aphasia, i.e. the forgetting of common words that sometimes happens to me during uh, brain foggy episodes as a result of my chronic illness, but I digress. This play is rife with myth, and we're going to talk about all of it. The main folklore that this play is based on is Selkie's and the Little Mermaid story. Both have long pasts in multiple cultures, and they have been utilized to talk about voicelessness and sexism for decades. Catherine Gwynne uses these stories to talk about those issues, as well as toxic masculinity, healthy versus toxic relationships, and modern queer love. Let's tackle the Selkie myths. First, what are Selkies? They seem to have originated as Scottish mythology. They are women who can turn into seals and back again by taking off and putting on a seal skin. In some instances, it is said that Selkies can only turn into humans once every seven years, but that is not always the case. The tales that feature Selkies tend to be about human men stealing a Selkie's skin and hiding it so she cannot leave, and therefore forcing her to live with him and usually to be his wife. This skin is usually said to be completely unique, so she can only use her own to transform. In a lot of these myths, as soon as the Selkie finds her skin, she will rush off to the sea and leave, even if she has children with the man. She is usually never seen again. This is changed in some children's stories, however. Sometimes a Selkie in those stories would visit her human family once a year. Shape-shifting seal women are not solely a Scottish story. Icelandic culture also has a Selkie creature called Feroese. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's F-A-R-O-E-S-E. It seems that these beings share the same characteristics as their Scottish counterparts. Selkies also sometimes appear in Irish folklore as well. There are a few theories as to where the Selkie myth originated. Often in Scotland, when a child would be born with abnormalities, the fairies or other such creatures would be blamed. Selkies could have been a story created to explain why some children were born with syndactyly, a condition in which the fingers and toes are webbed. It was thought that if a man's wife was a Selkie, or if a woman had slept with a Selkie, that that could be why the child had flipper-like appendages. In this way, selkies could be considered an aquatic type of fey creature. Before I move on to the Little Mermaid, one last thing relating to selkies and aquatic fey legends. 
The Selkie character in Skin Song, Undine, is named so by the deaf human Gwen, since Selkies, at least in this play, cannot speak. There is significance behind this name. Undine is the name of a type of water nymph or sprite in European myths. There are also multiple stories, both modern and not, about a female water spirit, mermaid, and or selkie creature named Undine. Now let's look at The Little Mermaid, and I don't mean the Disney version. While that is a completely valid variation on the story, I want to take a look at the original version. Some of you may know that the first version of The Little Mermaid was written by Hans Christian Andersen, a Danish author. In his version, a young mermaid cannot swim to the surface until she is 15. Once her birthday arrives, she can spend a whole day observing the human world in secret. When it comes time for the Little Mermaid to venture to the surface, she spends her time watching a birthday party on a ship thrown for a handsome prince. A storm hits and the ship is destroyed. Our heroine saves the prince and takes him to shore where, of course, she falls in love with him. The prince never sees her and she is sad that he will never know who she is. She asks her grandmother, which she has in this story, which like, what? If humans live forever. Of course, we know they don't. But the grandmother reveals that because mermaids apparently do not have a soul, they live to be at least 300 years old, which, yikes. Then the deal with the sea witch that we all know about occurs. The little mermaid exchanges her voice for a human form. This human form will give her the ability to dance more beautifully than any human, but every step will feel extremely painful. And we all know the catch. If the Little Mermaid can't get the prince to marry her before he marries someone else, she will turn into seafoam and essentially die. Little bit darker than the Disney version, I know. The Sea Witch gives her a potion to accomplish this, which the Little Mermaid essentially takes on the prince's doorstep, leaving her unconscious from pain and also naked. Imagine the concern, finding a random naked lady on your porch. Oy. Anyways, she gets close to the prince and dances for him all the time, even though it hurts like hell. Eventually, though, he falls for a princess and marries her instead of the Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid's sisters come to the surface and give her a dagger that they got from the sea witch in exchange for their hair, encouraging her to kill the prince and let the blood drip on her feet. This will make her a mermaid again, and the whole endeavor can be forgotten. But the Little Mermaid cannot bear to kill the prince, so she takes the dagger and jumps off of the ship on which the wedding took place. While she turns into sea foam, she doesn't die as expected. Because of her good deed, she is actually turned into an air spirit instead, because apparently, quote, she strove with all her heart to obtain an immortal soul. She must do good deeds for mankind for 300 some years, her original lifespan, and then she can ascend into heaven. Like, wow, right? <laughs> so different from the Disney version we all know. Happy ending, sort of, still, but not in the traditional way. We'll see later on how that and many other elements, such as dancing, correlate to Skin Song. All right, now's the time to hear a monologue from Skin Song by Catherine Gwynne, right after this ad read. And now, a very special reading of a monologue from Decrescendo Movement 9, from Skin Song, read by Edie Pierce. Stop speaking. Close your mouth. Do not open it again, don't you dare. Do you love me? 
I love you. I love you in the way that you love a limb. An unconscious, ever-present, limp kind of love that you only notice when the limb is suddenly gone, hacked off, and you are left with the stump of a wound. You don't know what I'm saying for the most part. You are catching words here and there, I can tell by the confusion and anger and fear on your face, but you don't know what I'm saying. And that is a pain far greater than any hacked off flesh. Do you know silence? Do you know what it's like to be silent? To made silent? It's like water filling your lungs. You hurt her. You stole her. Tried to possess her. You hurt her in a way beyond forgiveness. You buried her skin in the sand, but it didn't matter because you wouldn't rest until her heart beat in your hand. What kind of man does that make you? A man who believes that just because you want it means you can have and... But... I stole her skin too. I almost stole her too. I don't want to forgive you, because that would be the beginning of forgiving myself. I love her. I love her more than you have ever loved me. But I almost treated her like you have treated me. I have signed every day to the sea for seven years. Did you ever even consider that I was as lonely as you. Thank you once again for lending your talents to the podcast, Edie. Edie's professional details are in the show notes of this episode if anyone would like to contact her. The writing in this play is just so beautiful, right? I can only imagine how it would look on stage utilizing ASL and projections to create the full atmosphere. I did my best via sound editing with our reading today to get the correct aesthetic, and I only hope I did Catherine Gwynn and Heather justice. I think with this play, the best way to organize my analysis is by going character by character. Since this play has essentially four characters, Gwen, Undine, Doug, and the sisters, we'll have four little mini sections of our discussion today. First, Let's talk about Gwen. Gwen is deaf and lives with her brother, Doug, a lobster fisherman by the sea. It seems that their parents have passed on and left the house and the profession of lobster fishing to their children. We gather from the beginning of the play that the town in which they live is the small type where everyone knows everyone, which if you've lived in a small town like that, like I have, you know it's its own type of isolation. Something that immediately struck me from the beginning of the play is how Doug treats Gwen. As I said earlier, Gwen is deaf. She reads lips fairly well, but prefers to speak through ASL. Doug, however, never bothered to learn any ASL beyond basic fingerspelling. In the first scene between them, he also frequently ignores his sister's pleas for him to face her so she can read his lips. Otherwise, she doesn't know what he's saying. He does not seem to care and doesn't really comply. This gives us quick insight into how Gwen is treated and expected to communicate despite her deafness. Gwen is isolated and her quote, voicelessness, unquote, 
is perpetuated by the one person in the world who is supposed to love her unconditionally, her only surviving family. This fact really gives weight to Gwen's sign conversations with the sea. The sea listens to her better than anybody else does. On top of all this, Gwen is queer, another factor that can isolate a person in society. It's also not something she addresses until she meets Undine. This actually draws us back a little bit to The Little Mermaid. Something a lot of you might not know about Hans Christian Andersen is that it is very likely that he himself was queer in some way. Some literary historians have surmised that The Little Mermaid story might have been about Hans Christian Andersen's internal battle with himself about his queerness, feeling that it's something he could never voice, that he would never truly be able to have a romantic relationship with a man, but that he would rather die with his secret than erase the platonic relationship or relationships he had with men he loved. This is another way, then, that Gwen, and Undine as well, combat voicelessness through the lens of their queerness. But thank goodness this play ends with Undine and Gwen finding their voices, but more on that later. Since we're already talking about her, let's move on to Undine. When we first see her, Undine is dancing with her sisters on the beach. From this vantage point, Undine notices Gwen signing to the sea. Undine comments that she didn't know that humans could speak with their hands, and she's utterly fascinated. When Doug brings her into his and Gwen's home in the next scene, Undine recognizes Gwen from her signing. It is also then that we as the audience discover that while we can hear Undine, the other characters in the play cannot. We also see immediately that Doug is operating within the confines of Scottish myth regarding Selkies. He has captured Undine and buried her skin on the beach, intending to make Undine his wife. Undine seems to be aware of this and is wary of Doug from the beginning. My first note that I wrote down about Doug because of this is, wow, Doug is creeping me out. <laughs> so who Undine is and how she's feeling is very apparent from the beginning, despite the fact that she is mute to the other characters. Her interest in Gwen as a person is clear, as she's open about wanting to learn sign very early on in the play. Once Gwen agrees to teach her, their relationship quickly moves from platonic to romantic. Doug, once he realizes this, is visibly uncomfortable and angered. He doesn't like that Undine is learning sign language from Gwen, as he seems to have some weird aversion to the idea of ASL, at least it seems to me. But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. Back to Undine. We see from early on that she cannot go back into the sea even a little bit without her skin. The closest she can get is dancing on the shoreline. So she does so every morning. Eventually, Gwen begins to secretly watch her. I said dancing would become relevant, didn't I? Just like The Little Mermaid and Anderson's original story, Undine is an otherworldly dancer. However, instead of feeling physical pain in her feet and legs, as she dances, there is an element of emotional pain, since she cannot enter the sea. God, I love parallelism, ugh, parallelisms and shit like that. Ugh, it's great. Okay. Ugh, outburst over. <laughs> Anyways. Now, back to Doug. Doug is... He's a complex character. He has three different monologues that give us some insight into his thought processes. His first one is about his hobby, playing the violin. Doug philosophizes about the mathematics and science behind sound and music, eventually drawing comparisons to the human voice. The subtext of this speech is clear. 
Undine can't speak, and Gwen prefers to speak through sign. But Doug says that the only way to make true music is by using your voice, clearly showing his true opinions on both Gwen and Undine's inability to communicate in the same way he, an abled person, does. Doug is not only a personification of the sexism and toxic masculinity involved in the Selkie myths and in a lot of modern-day interactions between men and women, but also of ableism. Just because you supposedly love someone who is deaf and or disabled doesn't mean you're immune from being ableist, and Doug clearly shows this. His second monologue is about his relationship with the sea, which is tenuous. He talks about how well he knows the sea, while at the same time, mostly, hating her. And that's the pronoun he uses, she, her. His last comments are regarding Undine and how she reminds him of the sea. Because of this, it isn't too far-fetched to assume that we can apply Doug's earlier comments about the sea to Undine. The final speech is about a time when a seal got stuck in one of his lobster traps, and though he tried to get it loose, it wouldn't let him touch it. Since Undine is a Selkie, the subtext of this text isn't hard to discern. The seal died rather than let Doug touch it. There is so much in this speech about how queerness is viewed by straight cisgendered men, and also the relationship between how men and women view different situations in which a woman seems trapped. I could probably talk for much too long just about this monologue, so I'll leave my thoughts there and let you guys come up with your own analysis when you hopefully read this play for yourselves. Ultimately, Doug is trying to possess Undine in the same way that men used to believe they could possess a woman through marriage. It's shitty, it's demeaning, and it clearly makes Undine feel unsafe. And unfortunately, Undine doesn't have the ability to speak for herself, at least through her voice. This is one of the reasons that Doug probably hates that Undine learns sign language. It means she can vocalize her displeasure with her situation and her longing to return to her home. Basically, while we can feel empathy for the isolation Doug also experiences due to his profession and the location in which he lives, he is ultimately pretty shitty and represents a lot of things perpetuated by straight cisgendered men that ultimately harm queer, disabled, and or female people. Finally, the sisters. The silent ensemble of Undine's free selkie sisters who comment on the play through dance, associated projections, and shadow voicing i.e. someone else speaking the words as though the sisters are saying them. In the playwright's character list, she states that the sisters are to be played by three to five people, a mix of hearing and deaf slash hard of hearing performers, all genders, ages, races, etc. The sisters do not speak. They communicate in their own selkie language, which is conveyed through projections, dance, and shadow voicing. They often serve as an extension of Undine's feelings, and they participate in some way with all of Doug's monologues. In my interpretation, I believe this is to show the other character's opposition to what he is saying, and also to give a personification to the sea which he is often raging against. Basically, the ensemble of sisters serves many purposes. There are quite a few scenes that are solely dancing, so to have an ensemble of expressive movers is essential to the play. God, I could talk about this play forever, but I don't want to give everything away, so you guys can make some discoveries when you hopefully read this work for yourselves. 
Skin Song is a beautiful work that centers deaf and or disabled and queer women while using myth and folklore to talk about voicelessness and isolation that these women experience. Theater, unfortunately, still has a long way to go with representation of disabled women specifically, and queer women as well. So works like these are important to uplift. We need more stories from and about disabled people and queer people, especially from female-identified and BIPOC writers and performers. It is free to read with a subscription to New Play Exchange, which is extremely affordable and I highly recommend getting. You should read the play through there. And no, we are unfortunately not sponsored by New Play Exchange, though if anyone listening uh, works for them, I would be open to discussions. (laughs) Oh gosh, sorry guys. Well, that's all I have for you this week, folks. I hope to see you next week when we're discussing Maria Irene Fornes' Fefu and Her Friends with a very special guest. Have a safe and fulfilling week, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you.